0: The world would say, I'm free to do whatever I want, so long as I don't see it hurting anyone. The Scripture says, I am free to live for Christ. I am not my own. I belong to Him. And so, the one who rescued me has set me free to love my neighbor, to prefer others, To care for the broken, to stand for his gospel. I'm not free, I am his. And that, my friends, is the good news that gathers us here this day. Let's sing this song as a prayer Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Amen. And have a seat if you would. And thank you. It's always a good thing for us to gather and worship. I'm always thankful that we're able to add uh, musicians, uh, kind of build this moment in the worship that it involves. Uh, a number of things for us to be praying for. I've mentioned um, friends uh, and folks in Louisiana with the approaching hurricane were praying for the unbelievable situation in Afghanistan right now and the pressure's there. We're living in a time and moment of pressure and it's just really important that we learn uh, how to connect to what God is doing in this moment of pressure. So I'm going to pray with that in mind. I'll close with words from Scotty Smith. Uh, let's turn to the Father and pray. O oh Lord, our God and Father, um, as we look into your eyes, as it were, We thank you for the peace and calm that comes from the assurance of your goodness and your ability. But as we look to the world, it kind of takes our breath away sometimes. Thank you that you teach us to not worry, but to come to you in prayer. Help us see that in Paul's life as a, a promise that you give to us right here. And so, we would pray for a world that seems pressured and broken. Uh, the tragedies in Afghanistan, the pending destruction in South Louisiana, things that we know or may not even be aware of that bring us to a precipice and challenge us. Thank you that you lead us and guide us, that you're a good shepherd, and that you will care for your flock. With that in mind, we pray for Hardaway, the ministering, That you would use our various extensions of the gospel, whether Neighbors Plus or our student ministry, our worshiping communities, our missionaries, in all these things that you would have your hand to guide and bear fruit, not simply the fruit of our comfort, but the fruit of the advance of your kingdom to the saving of many lives. We pray for Watershed where Pastor Aaron will be preaching today and for Fusion with Pastor J.B. and for Misión, the Spanish language church under Pastor Florencio that will be ministering right here where I stand in just a few hours. We pray, Father, for celebration, this portion of your kingdom, this portion of the body of Hardaway. Of for those who've received hard diagnoses, who are in the, the journey of medical care, for those who feel hard-pressed, for those who've lost a loved one, for those navigating, conflicting, confusing, challenging times in whatever way. Give them guidance as your people, whether it's a, a business and the employees that are affected, whether it's a school and students and families, staff, whether it's church, and hearing your voice for the next step, we pray for your guidance. Give that to us here at Celebration, Father, step by step. In 1 Timothy 2, you teach us to pray for those in authority over us. And so we do that. This week in our rotation, we pray for local government, for Holland City and Park and Holland Townships, for Ottawa County, this region, the the many boards, many employees, the decisions they will make. We pray particularly for the various school boards, private, charter, public. As they navigate this moment, help us come together to your glory for the advancement of good things in our midst. Help us sort through these things. Father, we thank you that the gospel is for every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And we pray for our missionaries as they go out, and even, Father, I pray for the family that we cared for several years ago, came here from a a predominantly Muslim country. We helped them settle. I know Celebration people are still involved with them. We pray that the fullness of your grace would guard them and their families overseas and that they'd know the saving hope and grace of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. Let it teach us to pray. I would meditate on Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk, literally that corrupting, is gangrene-producing. Let no gangrene-producing talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Give us those kind of words, Father. We don't need a long prayer today, just a well-timed, heart-focusing meditation. In Luke 6:45, you tell us, Lord Jesus, in no uncertain terms, that what we say and how we say it reflects whatever is currently filling our hearts. If others in our circle of relationships and conversation are experiencing our words as weaponized meanness, a carrier of gangrene, a source of death, not life, fear fertilizer, self-promotion, or a shame fountain. We know that doesn't necessarily mean we're bad people, but it does mean that something's going on in our hearts that needs immediate attention and your anointing of grace, Jesus. Whether our hearts have been touched by old-school heart drift, or too little time invested in meditating on your beauty, grace, and love, or filling our hearts with more COVID news, world news, or spin news than the good news. Grant us grace to change what we fill our heart with. Forgive us, Jesus, and free us. Nothing is more true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable than you. So just as Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 8, we set our minds on those things. And from hearts focused on you, we now express with our mouths the prayer that Jesus himself taught us, saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Well, through this summer and into the first few weeks of September, we continue to preach through the book of Acts. We're into Acts really 25 today on a series called Devoted. We were very struck as the three of us were praying and studying at the beginning of the season at how the church in this time is facing all sorts of new, confusing, and changing situations. But because they were devoted singly to God, The Holy Spirit helped navigate them through that. So through devotion, we find guidance and hope and peace. That's been kind of our central theme this morning. I want to look at lessons we can learn from Paul as he is in a prison cell. He spends Acts chapter 21 through 28 in jail. I've had the opportunity many times to preach in jails. And one of the things I've learned doing that is that there are very few people in pews, and almost as many people in jails who realize how much of the New Testament was written by somebody in jail. So, we remember that and meditate on this. I'm going to be reading from, I'll start at the end of Acts 24. I'll pick up a portion of Acts 25 and end with a key verse. Hear the Word of God as I read. When two years had passed, I'm not going to give you two years to wait, but just put that in your mind. Two years. The Roman governor Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Festus wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison the entire two years. Now, chapter 25. Three days before, or I'm sorry, three days after arriving in the province, that is to say almost immediately after replacing Philip, Felix, the new Roman governor Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Their desire for Paul's death had not abated over two years. Think of that heart of unforgiveness. Now beginning at verse 7. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, again wishing to do the Jews a favor, there's a theme in this passage, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand before me there on those charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Boom after Festus had conferred with his council, he needed a legal huddle here to figure out exactly what he was required to do. He declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now, I want to go to verse 19. Later on, the Roman governor Festus, who we've just seen, summarizes the legal case against Paul to King Agrippa, the governor of the region of Judah, which included the city of Jerusalem. And he says this, Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that there was this man named Jesus. Help us to know him, that he died, but for a particular reason. Help us to know that, that he was raised by your great power. Help us to experience that. Thank you that you raised up a physician by the name of Luke who would travel with Paul, who would gather the evidence from eyewitnesses, often being one himself. He would carefully record these events, and amazingly, across centuries now, you've preserved those texts. And now you've made it possible for us to open them, to translate, to study, to meditate, to read. So I ask, Holy Spirit, you finish your work by illuminating our hearts and minds to receive the fullness of all that you have for your people. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your mercy and kindness. Guard us from my brokenness, which yet remains, and fill us with a deep love for Jesus. For we make our prayer in his mighty name, and all of God's people sit together. Amen and amen. Well, for all of these chapters, 21 through 28, Paul is imprisoned. Tough news. Tough news for us in a in a tough week. I've been thinking about Paul in prison as I reflect on the county commissioners meeting this week. Boy, it was tense. And if you step back, no matter what the decision about masks, where you are on that, you'd have to be aware that... That decision led to that tense meeting. But if they'd made the exact opposite decision, there would be another tense meeting. Either way you go. Tense moment. Fortunately, those of us in Holland are far more, have far more decorum than Dripping Springs, Texas, Intermediate School District. At their meeting, a parent started taking off his clothes at the meeting to voice his concerns about mask mandates. I can just picture his wife at the gym, boy, Susan, I saw your husband on uh, TV last night. I saw way too much of him. It's crazy. People are being duct taped to their seats in airplanes for safe passage. Now. I'm not like any of the folks in Dripping Springs or on those airplanes, but I'm feeling the tension and the frustration. I'm seeing my fuse shortened. I'm seeing my patience used up. We all are. It's there and pressing in. But I was struck. I read these passages realizing that Paul is imprisoned, and he's been imprisoned longer than we have faced COVID. COVID two years at this point. Imagine, Paul has been in prison longer than we've faced COVID, and, and I noticed he looks and acts nothing like I'm feeling. He's keeping his clothes on. He didn't need ropes. After all, they didn't have duct tape. He was sharp. He was civil. He was at peace. He could interact. Look at this timeline and begin to get a sense of all that pressed in with Paul. Um, Paul would uh, Boy, I'm sorry we just skipped a slide that's my stumble there in 57 AD Paul arrived in Jerusalem that's what we read in Acts 21 about two years later where we are right now in Acts 25 he was before Festus and Agrippa that's a good two years or more It's not until 61 that in Acts 28 he gets to Rome. He's going to spend four or five years abandoned by unjust bureaucrats looking to do one another favors in a Roman jail. Imagine it, friends. Through all that, yet Paul looks different than I'm feeling right now, than I'm seeing as I look around on the horizon. I want to think some about the difference in Paul and what that can teach us. I see in Paul, and as I began to to meditate through this this week, the spiritual practice of Lectio Divina, I began to live in that jail cell with Paul, if you will, praying and meditating, and I realized that Paul was a different kind of inmate. God is at work in Paul throughout this time, even in prison. When he's done, he will write what we call the prison epistles. Philemon, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. I took time while doing the Lectio in this chapter to go back and read through all four of those books and say, what's happening in Acts 25 that in a few years would lead to these books? How would I get through a time like this is the question I ask myself. And then I pressed a little deeper. What has transpired in my own life, my own faith, and my own heart during COVID? Paul was a different kind of inmate. And he was a different kind of inmate because he had lived to see God's mighty acts. Just a few years earlier in Acts 16, he was in jail again in Philippi. And as they worshiped God in that moment, God did a divine jailbreak. It looked like an earthquake and it was, but they were all set free. The prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. In the course of his life, Paul had experienced the mighty hand of God rescuing him. Paul trusted God's grace and purpose. He did not build his life on his own faith. I've got faith to cause this to happen. Rather, Paul built his life on the God that he trusted, whether he was in jail, or not? Have the mighty acts of God really shaped my heart and what I trust? Paul was a different kind of inmate. I read a lot through the book of Philippians. That's writing to those people who'd seen the earthquake and that divine jailbreak. And Paul would write, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Do not be anxious but pray. Paul learned to pray in such a way that he could replace his anxiety with intercession. How about me? How about you? In the pressure of the moment, jail across four or five years, uh, he faced it with a prayer life. God developed a prayer life that would let him replace anxiety with intercession. Paul was a different kind of inmate because he knew full well that there was more going on than just bad government. There was that. His problem was not people in office, Felix or Festus. Remember, one would replace the other, and they both had the same motivations. His problem was deeper than that. He would write in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One of the things that's freed my heart to forgive people is realizing that the challenges I face are deeper than just people. If there's nothing but people and relationships that you need to navigate, then you're going to have to deal with them. The minute you begin to get a bigger biblical worldview and realize there's more to reality than just meets the eye, you've got another dimension of prayer to enter in. I don't doubt that while in prison, Paul would remember Daniel 10. In that passage, Daniel begins to pray and fast. He prays for three weeks. He fasts for three weeks. He's a man known for his commitment to God. And in verse 12, an angel of some sort appears to him, and he says, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them well, duh, why am I skipping a meal for three weeks? Let the angel answer, but the spiritual ruler of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. There was more for Daniel than meets the eye. Paul knew there was more for him than just Roman governors and Jewish council. He interceded with an understanding that there's more going on here. Friends, I want you to expand your understanding of Christianity to make room for that. You can pray, God releases an answer, and there's war in the heavenlies for weeks. Is that a different kind of prayer for you? The gospel made Paul a different inmate. We read in the book of Philemon these marvelous verse. No longer as a bondservant, do I send Onesius back to you, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. Paul could look at his inmates and see them as image bearers of God. He could look even at slaves who were inmates and see them as image bearers of God. He would invite them to respond to God's grace. To receive the new birth, the new life, and to become deeply loved, fully adopted children. Everywhere Paul was, he went with the gospel. That's what we read in Philippians 1.13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Everyone knew what moved Paul and why he was in prison. It was not any supposed crimes or his behavior or anything other than Paul's savior. Everyone saw that Paul was in prison because of his trust in Jesus, even his jailers. If I were unjustly left in prison for two years, is that what my jailers and my fellow prisoners would observe and receive from me? Could I trust the Holy Spirit to work in that way in my own life in prison or under the pressure of COVID? So that led me to a second question, and I'll be quick. If I were in prison, how would you do? What would become of celebration or of heartache if I were in prison? What's becoming of celebration and heartache of, and heartache as we rest under the pressure of COVID? What I saw as I meditated on the scripture, with that question in my mind was something like this: The gospel made Paul a different kind of pastor. Now I'm sure glad the football is starting, because I've got a whole new bunch of sermon illustrations. One of the challenges that the Detroit Lions and the New, York, the New Orleans Saints are facing this season is what kind of team will we have without our quarterback? We're missing Drew Brees. Detroit fan, fans are missing Matt Stafford. What happens when the key man is gone? that's what the church faced as paul languished in prison or was it i want to tell you paul was a different kind of pastor because he knew he wasn't the key man i want to tell you here at celebration i am not the key man the holy spirit is jesus At the right hand of the Father who pours out the Spirit is the one that leads and guides and empowers. That makes you a different kind of pastor. On July 25th, as we were looking at Acts 18, I looked at Paul's approach to ministry in a message called Discipling Generations, and that was not about Sunday School for Kids or Youth Ministry. It was about making disciples, passing along to others the life that you or I have in the Spirit passing it along so that they can bear fruit. Remember, Paul discipled Timothy, who discipled Priscilla and Aquila, who discipled Apollos, and the church in Ephesus grew and flourished. The gospel calls me to be a different kind of pastor just as it did Paul. Many times folks will look at me as a highly educated and capable religious professional. Okay, I've got more degrees than a person ought to have. I've been doing this for decades. I'm not the key man. A religious professional, we've got our doctors, we've got our dentists, we've got our educators, we've got our business people, we've got our professional religious. Religious professionals gather a crowd. We gather a following. We're judged by Is it getting bigger? But that approach to to ministry creates consumers. You know, no matter what you think, why I can say this, you don't even have to think. You can just get on the internet and find somebody who agrees with you, whether you think or not. We can pick our churches that same way. Or we can realize that the gospel makes a different kind of um, pastor. Not someone who gathers a follower, creates consumers, but one who is themselves, himself, herself, a servant of Jesus. Paul, just as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, was not free to determine his own life. I'm not here this morning because I want to be or am free to be. I'm here this morning because I'm called. And I'm happy and free to live into that. But Paul knew he was bought with a price because Paul was not his own. He belonged to his faithful Savior, Jesus, and he gathered rather than followers to himself, he gathered the body of Christ. Later on in the fall, I'm going to teach through a a brief celebration-specific series about grace-based serving, which is about spiritual gifts. You see, the Holy Spirit is the key man in this organization, and he gives gifts to every member of the body for service and for the glory of God. One expression of that is a gift of intercession, of intercessory prayer. Now, we should all be praying, but there's going to be a certain number of you who have a gift of intercession. There's a certain number of people in celebration who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, pray better than me. I want to find you. I want to encourage you. I want to equip you. Some of you have a gift of teaching and a passion for children. We need to identify you, equip you, and release you to ministry. It's not about your religious professional in the way that it is about your doctor for your medical care. I'm a disciple maker, equipping for ministry in the community and together. You see, Paul was a different kind of pastor because he was committed to making disciples. Finally, the gospel made Paul a different kind of citizen. I'm picking up that word from last week. You could see that Paul had a religious tradition. He was Jewish. That was an ethnic minority for him, ethnic identity for him as well. He was also a Roman citizen, so he was subject to that law. That was his political identity. But everyone around Paul knew that there was something more important than both his ethnic identity or his political identity. And it was his identity as a fully adopted child of the great Creator King, a believer in Christ. Paul was living for. Jesus, is king. That's what motivated him. That's why he did what he did. That's why he was all that he was. And when all was said and done, all they could bring against him was this claim. Paul talks about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. This is an interesting point in this story. Right here, you see the summary of Paul's impression on the people around him. Something about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. He confirms what Paul said of himself in verse 8. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. All Paul had done leading up to and during his two years of imprisonment was make known the good news of a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. This leads us to three key questions as we prepare for communion, as we come to reflect on the gospel. Paul would put it this way Who is Jesus? You know, many times people ask me questions. We're living in in challenging times. Muslims are typically trained to tell people that, Christians, that we all worship the same God. Well, Ask your Muslim neighbors and friends, do you really believe that the great God, the creator king has taken human form on planet earth? Because that's who Jesus is. The great God for a period of years left footprints in Galilee. He had dinner with friends. He prayed with sick people. Do you really believe that Allah took on flesh and walked among us? Well, of course not. My response is, we can't worship the same God then if you have to change the God that I worship. Because the God that I worship, Jesus, is the great King in the flesh. That's at the core of the gospel. Did He really die? And what did that death mean? Please, friends, set aside five minutes today. There's a brilliant five-minute video on our sermon resources. N.T. Wright, a British scholar, answers the question, what does the resurre- why does the resurrection matter? It's clear, it's concise, it's understandable, and it's got this cool British accent. I went to a church-related school. I could wish that a religion department professor would have believed that. It's important that Jesus died and that he was raised, and not just returned to the life that he lived before crucifixion, but that he entered on my behalf, the new resurrection life that he has promised to each one of us. By grace, image bearers like every person on this planet are invited to be adopted as his children because of who Jesus is, what His death means, and the historical reality of the resurrection. That's what we remember as we come to the table this day. It's right here that Paul would gather the people in his church, the disciples, and they wouldn't reflect on what we needed to do or how we needed to vote or what we needed to wear. They'd remember who Jesus was, what his death meant, and the power of the resurrection. Let me get my own cup, and I'll lead you through this. Paul would write, For I received from the Lord himself what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. In the Jewish Passover meal in the upper room, this would have been the cup of redemption, the third cup of the meal. And the head of household would have told them the story of the Exodus. How God had set his people free because of blood. And then Jesus would say, This cup is now a new covenant in my blood. All that it meant is fulfilled in me, he says. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy or inappropriate manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup." What does it mean to come in a worthy manner, in an appropriate manner, to receive? It means to come on Jesus' terms. None of us are free to come here the way we want, for what we want. He died to set us free that we might come on His terms. And he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who, weary, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to him, and he will give. Come to this table because you've worked hard, because you've prepared, because you've been anything other than surrendered, trusting. And you come in an appropriate way. Jesus us, and I extend that invitation to you, if you will put the trust of your life in Him, this table's for you. If you will let Him show you those places you're unable to trust so that by His grace He can work to chip those away. Many times it's those of us who are least worthy in the world's eyes that need to be at the front of the line. I'm just a sinner who's found He said, come, and so I come, join me, will you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your only begotten son, the Lord Jesus took on flesh, was willing to lay aside his glory and to take on our brokenness, to to leave footprints, to laugh with friends, to cry at the open mouth of a grave. To speak when people didn't want to hear. To speak to people that the world didn't want to see. That such one of Jesus would give his life for us. And that on the third day, just as the scripture said, he would be raised to new life. The first fruit of all that we now live for and trust in. I pray that you would gather your people. We are your flock. And that you would meet us here just as you promised, that you would take these things which are very simple, but by the presence of your Holy Spirit, your reality would meet us in power and in grace. Gracious Father, by the promise of your written word and your presence as the Holy Spirit, meet us here, we pray, as we remember your Son, his death, and his resurrection. Amen. I'm going to ask that each of you, where you are, let's first partake of the bread. If you'll uh, just lift up, it's a clear top, and you'll find the wafer. Uh, Let me say to you, the body of Christ, which is broken for you and for you. And then the next, you'll see just a foil cover. You need to find the little foil piece and pull that about halfway back. The cleaners warned me. Here God meets us. This is the blood of Christ shed for you and for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness that (laughs) even with a a silly little packaged reminder that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, you would meet your people. I pray for those of us in this room, for those who are participating online, uh, that you would meet us here that you would cultivate in us a life of prayer that can replace anxiety with intercession, that you'd give us a security in you that recognizes a a confusing world where there's more than meets the eye, but that by the resurrection of Christ, we are victorious rather than fearful. Bind us together as your people, Father, just as Paul would share the gospel with Philemon, Give us words to speak to neighbors and family and friends. But in all things, Father, I pray that you would have our lives so centered on Jesus and who He is, on His death and what it means, and on the resurrection and what that hope is for us. Father, continue to empower disciples and to build the body. Set me free from the inner compulsion to gather followers. but we pray that your kingdom would be established in our midst until it is finally established on the planet. We join with those who've loved you across centuries and who love you now even across the world in underground churches, in large churches, in small churches, the gathering of your body to marvel at the gospel and to receive all that you are giving. We thank you for these things, Father, and we make our prayer in the name of our only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of God's people sit together, amen, amen. We are just one moment's presence of a great work that God has been doing across centuries. So let's stand and sing with Martin Luther and the Church of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God. Go forth in the blessing and victory of our God, taken from the book of Jude. And now to him, the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior. To him be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen.